Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Are back with another pod quiz. So exciting. You guys are loving these and that makes me very happy. If you love them a lot, please go to iTunes, rate and review this podcast. It'll help it show up easier for other students to find it. So we're going to do a pod quiz today talking about some basic fundamentals. So if you are a first semester student, or you're just reviewing, perhaps for your final exit, ATI, HESC, or whatever you take at your school, this is a perfect podcast for you. So without further ado, let's get into the pod quiz. So how it works, if you haven't done one before, is I will ask a question, pause for a little bit, give you time to answer it. I recommend you answer it out loud as long as no one's going to look at you funny. And then I will tell you the answer. So basically you're doing flashcards with your ears. And I always ask that people get up, move around, go for a walk, do some exercise, get outside, do something useful so that you are maximizing your time and hopefully doing something good for your body while you're studying. That's why I used this method when I was a student and it really freed me from sitting at my desk, which I felt like I did all the time. And I was able to study while I got stuff done. So without further ado, here we go. At what age does the risk for death from falls increase dramatically? Around age 70. Is a fall risk assessment delegated to a nursing assistant or some assistive personnel? No, it is not. Assessments are always done by the registered nurse. Name a few drugs that put a patient at a higher risk for falling. And not the specific drugs, just the type of drugs. This would be antihypertensives, diuretics because they drop your blood pressure, opioids, and antihistamines. Also, probably also anything that affects uh, neurological function in any way. When do you use the side rails? When is it indicated? So using side rails 
are indicated if the patient is very weak, the patient is sedated or confused. Note that in some facilities, it's considered a restraint depending on how many side rails you have up. Speaking of restraints, what complications are associated with the use of restraints? Good, so there's pressure ulcers, constipation and incontinence, urinary retention, and the biggie, death due to asphyxiation. The physician's order for restraint must specify four things. What are they? I'm sorry, that was a trick question. It's three things. I had you thinking there. It's the type of behavior requiring the restraint, the type of restraint used, and the time limitations. My apologies, that's just three things. Can you delegate the application of a restraint to an assistive personnel? Yes, you can delegate the application of it, but you cannot delegate the assessment for the need for restraints. What kind of restraint would be best for a patient who is trying to pull the sutures out of his head? An elbow restraint would be great for this. Um, in peds, they're called no-nos. But um, just so you know, in case someone calls it a no-no. Um, elbow restraint, the idea is that you want to use the least amount of restraint possible. This patient could still use their hands, but they would not be able to bend that elbow to reach up for their sutures. How about a combative patient? What type of restraint would be the best? That would be your wrist restraint and if they're kicking, an ankle restraint. How about for a little one, a child who's pulling at her dressings? A mitten would be perfect for that. How about for a drowsy elderly patient or a disoriented patient who's maybe trying to get out of bed. So that could be uh, a posy vest for the person who's trying to get out of bed. Um, there's also belt restraints if maybe they're sitting up in a chair uh, and they're getting a little drowsy, you can use a belt restraint to keep them from just slumping over and falling over. How often do you reassess the need for restraints? every 24 hours. How often do you reposition all patients who are in bed and unable to reposition themselves? Every two hours, good. How about repositioning patients in a chair who are sitting up in a chair? Yeah, that's every 20 to 30 minutes, so a lot more often. What is a sheer injury? A shear injury is the one that occurs when the skin is stationary, but the underlying tissue shifts. This happens like when you're repositioning and scooching a person up in bed, or if they're sitting in a high fowlers and are kind of sliding down. Everybody slides down in bed. When you're at home, do you slide down in bed like that? No, I don't understand why it happens in the hospital. It is a mind-boggling mystery, and if any of you figure it out, please let me know. I mean, I even have one of those beds that's adjustable, and even when I have it 
up high because my husband is snoring. We don't end up at the foot of the bed. I don't get it. Okay, moving on. Who is going to be most at risk for a sheer injury? Okay, so those are really thin patients or cachetic patients. Anyone with fragile skin, uh, that's going to be your elderly or someone with kidney disease or diabetes or on corticosteroids for like an autoimmune disorder. Any patients who are malnourished and anyone unable to move on their own. When does orthostatic hypotension occur? That occurs when the patient is changing position from horizontal to sitting or horizontal to standing. And if it's if they've changed position too fast, they get that drop in blood pressure and they feel woozy. I'm sure it's happened to you before. So that's orthostatic hypotension. How much does the blood pressure drop with orthostatic hypotension? Fifteen millimeters per mercury for the systolic and ten for the diastolic. Um, name a few meds that would indicate a patient is at risk for orthostatic hypotension. So some of these would be um, your antihypertensives, antihistamines, diuretics, hypnotics, sedatives anti-emetics, pain medication, anxiety medication, all of those can put your patient at risk for orthostatic hypotension. And let's see, would you ever delegate the repositioning of a spinal cord trauma patient to assistive personnel? No. They could help you, but you want to be the one running that show. What is hemiplegia or hemiplegia? That is weakness on one side of the body. Oh, I love these types of questions. If you're helping a patient with right-sided weakness go from bed to chair, what side of the bed will you place the chair? You'll place it on the left side, their strong side. I love the I love the ones about how to walk with crutches almost just as much. I am kidding. Could you delegate feeding of a dysphagic patient to an assisted personnel? That's a no. You need to be there to assess their swallowing ability. Even if they've already had a swallow eval by speech therapy, you want to make sure because things change. And they are high risk for aspiration. So if they start aspirating, you need to be ready with the suction and maybe some oxygen and all of that good stuff. What is the purpose of a plate guard? Okay, this is just a little thing on the plate so that the patient can push their food up against it so that they can fill their spoon or fork. So this would be for someone who's very weak, having trouble uh, with the mechanics of, of actually eating or someone with uh, a tremor, Parkinson's, something like that. In what position would you place a patient who has dysphagia for feeding? High Fowler's, good. 
tell me what pulse oximetry estimates. So pulse oximetry estimates arterial blood oxygen saturation. And it does this by measuring oxyhemoglobin in the arterial blood. What's the normal range for an SpO2? 90 to 100. What is a normal O2 saturation in a healthy adult on room air? About 95% or above would be good for a healthy adult on room air. Typically, you're going to see it higher, 98, 99, 100, but 95 or above is the technical correct answer. What is the FiO2 of room air? What percent oxygen is room air? Excellent, 21%. Very good. Okay, let's say you're looking at your oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. Don't you love saying that? What's a shift to the right represent? So that's going to be um, oxygen level changes caused by an increase in pH. So if pH goes up, shift to the right, decrease in temp, or decrease in carbon dioxide. Conversely, what's a shift to the left indicate? So that's your decrease in pH, so the patient's becoming more acidotic, an increase in temp, an increase in carbon dioxide, and an increase in diphosphoglyceric acid. What is 2,3-DPG? That is diphosphoglyceric acid. I can't say that very well. It's the blood chemical that regulates hemoglobin's ability to attract oxygen. Okay. What are some risk factors for low O2 saturation levels? There's actually probably a ton of these. Um, recovering from anesthesia would be one. Anything that causes respiratory depression, like maybe they're on some narcotics. Any trauma to the chest wall. Any pain that inhibits deep breathing. Uh, being vent dependent. Having COPD. Having any kind of space occupying lesion in the lung fluid overload, all kinds of things, basically. And anytime you change oxygen therapy, it might take the patient a little bit of time to get used to uh, as you wean them down, get them used to it. Okay. Let's see. I'm sorry, a little pause here. Your patient, you're going to set your pulse ox alarm limit. What would you set it at? You want the alarm to go off at, for most patients, at 90. You want to keep them above 90. If it's a COPD patient, you might be able to set it at 88, 
um, discuss that with your MD, but typically that's acceptable at 88%. How often are you technically supposed to relocate the pulse ox probe? At least every four hours. What? Not every four days. What's going on? Um, every four hours. How often would you assess the skin under the probe? Yeah, just like any skin assessment, it's about every two hours. And sadly, in the real world, that ain't happening. Okay, what's a normal range for a respiratory rate? Yeah, 12 to 20 um, is typically considered normal. Let's see here. Hang on one second. Okay, what is hypoxia? Hypoxia is inadequate tissue oxygenation in the presence of adequate blood supply. Okay, how about hyperventilation? And don't just say breathing fast. What is it? Hyperventilation is abnormal ventilation causing increased air exchange and decreased arterial carbon dioxide levels. Remember, if they're hyperventilating, they're breathing off their CO2. How about hypoventilation? So hypoventilation is abnormal ventilation that reduces the amount of air exchanged in the pulmonary alveoli and it results in increased CO2 levels. Okay, for, let's see, what are some things that tachypnea would signify as going on with your patient? Just name a few. So it could be respiratory failure, it could be a fever, they could be anemic, in pain, have an infection, or maybe they're just anxious. Okay, how about bradypnea? That's hard to say. What does it signify? So that's gonna signify uh, maybe your patient's just sleeping. Uh, they probably have some respiratory depression if they're taking narcotics. They could have a drug overdose. They could have a lesion somewhere in the central nervous system. What is apnea? That is the cessation of respirations longer than 15 seconds in length. How about Kuzmal's breathing? What is that? So Kuzmal's is this rapid, deep, labored breath, usually at a rate above 30, 35 breaths per minute. And what does Kuzmal's breathing signify? So you're going to have Kuzmal's in your diabetic ketoacidosis patient, a metabolic acidosis patient, someone 
and renal failure so severe that it is causing a metabolic acidosis. That is your Kuzmal's respiration. They're trying to blow off that extra acid. What is Shane Stokes? Shane Stokes are respirations with a variable pattern that have increased depth interspersed with apnea. And what does a Shane Stokes breathing pattern signify? So it could be an acid base problem or a neurocerebral insult or injury problem. Okay, why would a severely anemic patient feel breathless? So the severely anemic patient is going to have a low hemoglobin. So they have lower oxygen carrying capacity, which is going to lead to lower O2 saturation. So they will feel breathless. What does cyanide poisoning do to tissue perfusion? Cyanide is going to cause um, the tissues to not be able to extract oxygen from blood. That um, cyanide, I do believe, if I'm thinking of the right one. Oh, no, I'm thinking of CO2. Never mind. Erase that. Moving on. If a patient has atelectasis or pneumonia, what's going on at the alveolar level? So at the alveolar level, you've got decreased diffusion of oxygen from the alveoli to the blood. What kind of traumas would cause impaired ventilation? So the obvious are chest traumas, like rib fractures, something like that. Also, spinal cord trauma and head trauma can affect ventilation. What is your earliest sign of hypoxia? Restlessness, excellent. What type of breathing pattern is going to result in excess elimination of carbon dioxide? Hyperventilation, good. And what kind of respirations would you have in salicylic acid poisoning? You'd have Kuzmal's respirations. Um, salicylic acid poisoning is going to result in a metabolic acidosis, and one of the ways the body deals with metabolic acidosis is through Kuzmal's respirations. Okay, your patient's dizzy has blurred vision, tinnitus, and tachycardia. What kind of breathing pattern are they doing? They are hyperventilating. They also may have um, the tingling of the fingers and hands. What type of breathing would a patient with COPD be doing? They are going to be hypoventilating. Very good. What is atelectasis?
That is when the alveoli collapse and prevent the normal exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Okay, your patient has the following symptoms, convulsions, disorientation, dysrhythmias, and an acid-base imbalance. What type of breathing are they doing? Okay, you might see that in hypoventilation. How often do you have your patient with chronic respiratory disease cough? At least every two hours. Very good. How about if they've got a large amount of sputum, how often should they be coughing? You want them coughing every hour. Get that stuff up. Um, let's see. What cough technique stimulates the natural cough reflex? The huff cough. Which cough technique is the best for large amounts of sputum? Cascade cough. Very good. What is hypercapnia? That is elevated CO2 in the blood. What type of catheter do you use for oropharyngeal suctioning? That's your yank hour, your standard yank hour or tonsillar tip catheter. Can you delegate oropharyngeal suctioning to an assistive personnel? Technically you could, I wouldn't do it directly after any kind of a surgery or if the patient has any kind of facial trauma, um, but if they're just sitting in their room and they're coughing and they've got a little gunk on their mouth, you can have someone suck, suck that out of their mouth for you. Okay, your patient is coughing persistently. That could be a sign you need to do what? Suction them. Is suctioning clean or sterile technique? Just the oral pharyngeal suctioning. It's a clean technique, no big deal. Where do the enzymes that are active in the stomach come from? Two places. The pancreas and the gallbladder, very good. What does the ileum absorb? Vitamins, iron, bile, salts. Three things, vitamins, iron, bile salts. Bile salts, I'm saying that like it's four things. Vitamins, iron, and bile salts. Okay, what are the four primary functions of the colon? Absorption, protection, secretion, elimination. What does the colon absorb? Three things. The colon absorbs water, sodium, and chloride. What does the colon secrete? The colon secretes bicarb and potassium. In the colon, bicarb is exchanged for what? Electrolyte. Chloride, very good. 
What happens to peristalsis as you get older? It slows down and can lead to constipation. What serious elimination problem can occur with a bacterial infection? A duodenal ulceration. Interesting. I did not remember that. This is good. I'm learning also. What does iron do to elimination? It's going to cause some constipation. What do opioids do to peristalsis? Also, slow it down. Okay, your patient's on an anticholinergic med. Is he going to be constipated or have diarrhea? Constipated. Your patient is on some anti-Parkinson meds. Will they be constipated or have diarrhea? Constipated. Okay. Um, let's see. Patients with a history of what should avoid straining during a bowel elimination? So three conditions. You don't want them straining at all. Anyone with cardiovascular disease, you do not want them to strain and initiate a vagal response where they'll braid you down and code on you on the commode. That'd be awful. Glaucoma, because that's going to increase the pressures in the eyes. And anyone with increased intracranial pressure, that will make it go up higher. Let's say your patient's been constipated, and now you see some stool kind of seeping out, kind of liquidy. What is the likely problem? It's likely that they have an impaction and that that liquid stool is just seeping out around it. Okay, so that was almost 100 questions. I think that's plenty. We're at about half an hour, which is perfect for a pod quiz. I do want to remind you that there are a few other pod quizzes and typically I'm doing one a week. We'll see if that continues. I hope it does. If you guys still like them, I will keep doing them. If you go to www.straightanursingstudent.com, up on the top menu bar, you'll see podcasts. Click on podcasts to go to all the podcast episodes or pull the menu bar down to pod quiz to go to the pod quiz episodes or just simply go to iTunes and subscribe. Search for Straight A Nursing under podcast and you'll find it. It's right there. It's got a big A. You can't miss it. I'd like to invite you to follow Straight A Nursing on social media. So there is a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash straight A Nursing Student. Come over there. You can also join the Facebook group, which is more informal. It's a group page. If you go to groups and search for Straight A Nursing Student, you'll find it. And Twitter is at Straight A Nurse. And Instagram is straight A nurse. So that's it for today. Thank you guys very much. I hope you got 100% on your quiz. If not, do it again. Go for another walk. All right. Have a good one. Bye. This podcast is a production of straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.